Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Iwo Jima, uh, specifically because the 75th anniversary of the battle is this week. The battle actually started uh, this past Wednesday um, when the Marines first landed on the beaches. Uh, and today marks the 75th anniversary of when the six U.S. Marines uh, planted uh, the flag on Mount Suribachi, which produced arguably the most iconic photo of the war. And I had the honor of interviewing James Bradley, who was the uh, number one New York Times bestselling author of Flags of Our Fathers, which was also produced into a Clint Eastwood film. Um, it's a phenomenal experience because um, of his research into the battle. He went and interviewed um, tons of veterans that participated in the battle. Um, and in addition, his father served, uh, John Bradley served with a 5th Marine Division uh, where he was a corpsman, um, where he took part in both uh, flag raisings and won a Navy Cross for heroism. Uh, but before we get into the interview, I definitely wanted to do background um, on the battle because it's important to understand um, the context surrounding the battle. Um, so obviously 1945, um, it's February of 1945. Um, Obviously, the Second World War had been raging up to this point, almost up to six years, um, and the uh, Marines had been waging a island-hopping campaign in the Pacific pretty much from the day of Pearl Harbor all the way up until this point. And the idea of this whole strategy was to attack where the Japanese military was weak on these islands and to bypass a lot of their strongholds. And this was happening both um, the area around the uh, around Australia and New Zealand, specifically starting with Guadalcanal, and in the Central Pacific, starting with the battles of the Marshall, I Marshall Islands, um, the Carolina Islands, and the Marianas Islands. And while all this was also happening, there was um, you know submarines attacking Japanese shipping lanes. There were um, you know big naval battles between carriers, um, but it was obviously the Marines who had who were leading the charge in the Pacific theater, um, fighting from island to island. So you have to go back to 1944 to understand the strategic importance of Iwo Jima, which was essentially the only island between Japan and the Marianas Island, where a lot of American bombers were leaving to go and bomb Japan. Um, and in doing so, the whole idea was to capture a halfway point so it would be easier for American bombers to either land if they're, uh, they got hit while they were bombing, or if they were running low on fuel, this island would be... Um, super important um, to this effort. Um, and now at this point too, the J Japanese um, strategy begins to change as well because um, the Japanese had a series of pretty much losing all of these battles, both at sea and at land. A lot of their garrisons, uh, more powerful garrisons had been bypassed and were left stranded because the Japanese couldn't um, supply them. Um, while at the same time, um, Japanese Air Force and Navy had pretty much been withered down in a series of naval battles throughout 1942, 1943, 1944. So by this time, uh, the U.S. pretty much controlled uh, the Pacific Sea and the majority of the islands surrounding Japan. So Japan decided to hunker down and essentially defend all of the islands around um, the Pacific, specifically Okinawa and obviously Iwo Jima. So the island had a critical importance to Japan pretty much from the start of the war. So it's important to understand that 
the Japanese were, you know, putting a ton of effort into um, defending this island. And it was pretty much done underground. Um, and by the time the Americans invaded on February 19th, 1945, um, almost 11 miles of tunnel network had been built. So all of these defenses were underground. And as uh, Mr. Bradley later explains, it was very difficult for U.S. Marines to actually figure out where the Japanese were. Um, as he said, it's some soldiers didn't even see uh, Japanese soldiers through the entire battle. So um, what, could, what the soldiers or the Marines who were landing um, – at this island were the 5th Marine Division, the 4th Marine Division, and the 3rd Marine Division, which was the reserve force. And the expectation was it would be a quick campaign specifically because the Japanese um, had been already losing a lot of their islands. Um, and also the Marines had plenty of practice um, in the previous three years of doing uh, landings. So the expectation was also that the uh, United or the Navy would... Um, the Navy would uh, pretty much destroy the majority of these uh, defenses, but that wasn't the case because most of these were underground despite all of this bombing and preparation done by both the U.S. Navy um, and the Naval Air Forces. It just it didn't happen. So pretty much from the moment the U.S. Marines hit the beach uh, when they became under very heavy artillery and machine gun fire um, and suffered... Um, pretty horrendous casualties. Um, and subsequently, um, the battle would pretty much rage on for a month. Um, and the island was eventually secure or eventually declared secure on, uh, on March 26, 1945. But the army forces that were left behind, um, to control the island had to wage a pretty, um, extensive effort into, uh, the, uh, into root out the last of the Japanese. And I believe there were two Japanese soldiers who actually stayed on the Island until like 1949, um, and didn't surrender until eventually they realized that the war was over and they formally surrendered, even though it was technically four years after the war had ended. Um, I think obviously also it's a super important battle because it produced arguably the most iconic flag, uh, or the most iconic image in probably not just American history, but pretty much World War II history of the six U.S. Marines um, raising the flag on Iwo Jima. And again, uh, if you read uh, Mr. Bradley's book, he documents kind of the journeys of these soldiers along with other uh, soldiers who were there. His father was there and helped with both the flag raisings, as he later explains, um, it's an awesome interview, and um, it's just uh, awesome to hear from um, one of the most um, famous authors uh, to ever write about this battle. Joined today by James Bradley, who is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Flags of Our Fathers, which was made into a movie directed by Clint Eastwood in 2006. Uh, his, other work, his other work includes bestsellers, Flyboys, A True Story of Courage, The Imperial Cruise, and The China Mirage, The Hidden History of the American Disaster in Asia. His father served with the 5th Marine Division, winning a Navy Cross on Iwo Jima, and he hails from Antigua, Wisconsin. So, Mr. Bradley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me.
Yeah, so I did just want to kind of want to start off with a broader question. So um, I've known, I know you've written a lot about um, kind of American policy um, in Asia in general. So kind of what like specifically interests you about that um, and the Pacific theater during World War II? Well, I was at the University of Notre Dame. I was my freshman and a guy named Matt Digby from California said, hey, you got to go to school in Tokyo. It's a lot of fun. I was there last year. So I thought Tokyo was in China. I had no idea. I was from Wisconsin. But he, he painted this picture of a magical land called Tokyo. So I signed up, and I went to school in Japan. Accidentally, my dad had fought the Japanese. Not accidentally. I, I just mean that I wasn't connecting it because he didn't talk about it. But here, the next generation, I'm in Tokyo, you know, having sushi with Japanese girlfriends, and my dad had to kill a Japanese man on the island of Iwo Jima. So when my father died, we found papers that uh, no one has ever seen. And I wrote, and then I was out in the Pacific again. But it's as if I had been trained to write the book because I had gone to school there accidentally in Japan and I'd gotten to know Asia and Asians. And then, boom, my dad dies many years later and uh, leaves this story that had never been told. Very interesting. So obviously you were inspired after your dad passed away, but uh, what were some of the challenges that you encountered um, trying to research the battle and kind of study um, the event in general? Well, obstacles in, in what way? Getting published or, or just calling up veterans? The research um, is different than the publication, different than the writing. Yeah, I mean, I would just say more in like the writing, for example, like trying to recreate the events and um, interviewing different veterans, um, the challenges of trying to put all of that together into a story. Well, you know, Tuesday, Tuesday comes before Wednesday, and Wednesday become, comes before Thursday. This is nonfiction. So you're not making it up. You are picking up, you know, raisins that were dropped out of a box, historical raisins, and you're following the trail. And then your job is to put them in a row and then shine them up like diamonds to tell the story to the reader. Awesome. So some great intro questions. Um, so we obviously get to the Battle of Iwo Jima. Um, obviously, at this time, the U.S. had already been involved in the war for almost four years. Um, can you take us through, like, some of the events that were happening in the year kind of leading up to the battle and how this sort of led to uh, this tiny island in the middle of the Pacific? Yeah, I'd like to answer that. I, I just realized I need to say something more about my last answer. And that is I talked about polishing diamonds and I don't want people to think that I'm talking about me being a, you know, an author. What I mean is there were so many diamond people and diamond events around this flag raising. First of all, you start with the most reproduced photo in the history of photography. More yes. people have printed this photo, looked at it, put it on stamps, made the world's tallest bronze monument to it. There's been four Hollywood movies made out of this uh, 
uh, made about, about this picture. If you go to Grauman's Chinese Theater out in Hollywood, you walk along that walk of fame, and you can see John Wayne's plaque. And John yeah. Wayne's plaque is different than all the others. His is black because John Wayne asked for the honor of being memorialized in black sand from the black sands of Iwo Jima. So the, yeah. there were presidents in this book. There was a photo in this book, movie stars. I mean, it, it, was, it just seemed like such a big story, so many diamonds that I thought the public would be interested. Yeah. Now, in terms of the Battle of Iwo Jima, it was a massacre. You know, talking about heroics and, I mean, I, I talked to a Medal of Honor winner on Iwo Jima. What he did is unbelievable. And he said, hell, James, I was trying to get off the island alive. You know, they, this was a massacre. This was a massacre. You have almost 7,000 dead U.S. Marines. They stacked them. They couldn't bury them for days. And then shells would blow up the body. Now in Saipan and Tinian and, you know, all those other islands where they had cemeteries, you know, they would bury them individually. That's Joe Blow, and this is Harry Blow, and this is whatever. On Iwo Jima, they had uh, markers, those guys out on the street who are marking lines. You know what I mean? They had mm-hmm. guys marking lines and just gouging out rows and rows. And the ministers didn't have time to go in each individual grave, the largest grave in the Pacific. So that's what Iwo Jima was. And the Japanese lived up to their code. Their wonderful uh, screwball generals up in Tokyo said, well, good luck dying. And then so the general, Kurabayashi, an honorable samurai, he could only say to his men, kill 10 Americans before you die so that the Americans don't invade the homeland. If we make Iwo Jima a meat grinder, maybe the Americans will not come and kill our mothers and, you know, invade Japan. So they tried to make it terrible, and they went underground. And I interviewed Marines who never saw a live Japanese soldier above ground. You know, you're talking, I mean, you got to read the book. <laughs> Iwo Jima is the weirdest battle in the world. You know, uh, uh, how many? Like, uh, I don't want to say numbers because people say I got the numbers wrong, but Tens of thousands of U.S. Marines above ground and 21,000 uh, Japanese underground. Yeah, almost like trench warfare, but in tunnels in a lot of ways. No, no, completely different. No, trench different. warfare is trench warfare. And you can do trench warfare in Canada and America and the Great Plains and the Indian Wars and the Philippines. This was, you know, pumice, you know, pumice, lava pumice. Yeah, that's how the island was created, correct? because it was a volcano. See, it was sulfur mines. Iwo Jima means sulfur. Yeah. So they had sulfur mines because the rock was porous. So the brilliant Japanese commander said, we'll go underground and we'll run it through tunnels. And the Americans were walking over the Japanese, not knowing they were under their feet. See, they, the Americans would go and clean out a bunker. I put this in the book. I, my brother and I went into this bunker. So the Japanese have got a bunker. It's two rooms. One room's for the ammunition. The other one's to fire at the Americans. Now, the Americans would bravely go, like, throw a grenade or shoot the guy, and the guy would slump over his machine gun. 
And Marines would say, okay, we clean that out. The machine gunner is, is dead and we killed the guy in the ammunition room. It's completely dead. Well, they didn't realize it was connected by a tunnel. Somebody would pull the bodies down. The Americans couldn't see this. And the thing was restocked and it came alive again. I mean, it was just bizarre. They were underground. And this, you know, we're talking about it right now. It sounds simple. Well, they were underground and we knew that in five minutes. No, they didn't. They didn't. I mean, they're dealing with rock and they're looking. They have no idea where the Japanese are. The commander fought the battle from 75 feet underground in his command post. Yeah, so obviously we know the Marines were facing very um, difficult fighting on the island. Um, can you just walk us through the sequence of events that kind of led up to the two flag raisings? Because I think um, for a lot of our listeners, they don't even understand in the first place that there were two flag raisings um, and kind of just that whole day in general, if you could walk us through it. Well, can I lead into my podcast, untoldpacific.com? I just interviewed Dustin Spence, and what does that mean? It means that in 1945, the Marines went atop Mount Suribachi, and in the morning they raised the flag, and in the afternoon they raised the flag. Call it the morning and afternoon flag raising. There were two flag raisings. The yeah. first one was important. The first one was important. Everybody cheered, but they wanted a bigger flag, so they raised the second one, which is completely legitimate. They put the second one up, took the first down. They put the first in the safe to protect it. The second flag raising, the one that's famous to all our eyes, the Joe Rosenthal uh, uh, most reproduced photo ever, when that flag went up, nobody cheered. That was a replacement flag. But it drove, the, it drove the public crazy back home, and it still does. It's like Marilyn Monroe. You can't explain the uh, attraction. But there were two flag raisings, and Dustin Spence, who I just interviewed for my podcast, Untold Pacific, takes us through the fascinating story that the, both of those photos have been misidentified for over 55 years. And he's the guy who correctly identified. It's unbelievable. I mean, the flag raising photo, everyone, I mean, in the encyclopedias, it tells you who's in these pictures. Yes. And they've been wrong for 55 years. So, yeah, um, just um, to follow up, what happened to these soldiers that ended up raising the flag after? Well, you're going to get in trouble if you talk about soldiers. There weren't any soldiers on uh, Marines. You would be, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. I'm kind of kidding you, but I, I said soldiers once on air, and uh, I got a lot of emails. Really? So they were Marines. So, oh yeah, yes. soldiers are were unable to take the islands of the Pacific. The army was completely incapable of, of you know, taking Tarawa site. They couldn't do that. That's why they shipped the Marines out. Marines, that's their specialty. Jumping out of a ship onto an island, which is, you know, the island's defended. They've prepared. It's the worst fighting ever. And Marines do it. Yes, I forgot the question. No, I was just going to say, what happened to the Marines after um, they raised the flag, obviously? Um, most people would have assumed they kept fighting, but some of them were shipped home, if I'm not mistaken. 
Well, my father helped with the, you know, is in the photo of the first flag raising. Yeah. And uh, when he came home, my mother said that he cried in his sleep for four years. And I said, what does that mean, Ma, crying in his sleep for four years? And she said he'd be on his side and tears would be coming out and he'd be like shivering. But she, we didn't even have the term post-traumatic stress back then. Yeah. After I wrote Flags of Our Fathers, a number of daughters contacted me, daughters of Iwo Jima veterans. And they would say things like, thank you, Mr. Bradley. Now I know why my dad shot himself in the garage 40 years after Iwo Jima. I was interviewing an 80-year-old corpsman. The corpsman is a Navy corpsman. He's like the Army medic, a medical officer. I'm interviewing an 80-year-old corpsman. And I said, come on, corpsman, you know, help me out with this research or whatever. And he said, James, he said, your dad didn't talk. I'm not going to talk to you. He said, let me put it this way, James. I appreciate what you're doing, but I'm 80 years old and I'm on Prozac and I'm trying to get a good night's sleep. Yeah, so obviously um, a lot of these veterans had to deal with this in their own ways. Um, Kind of like fast forwarding, because obviously the 75th anniversary of the battle, um, of its starting is today. Like, how do you think moving forward as more World War II veterans begin to pass away? How do you think Americans should continue to remember this battle in particular, uh, the photo, and really the war as a whole? Well, people forget. I mean, people don't remember. And battles recede when uh, when time goes on. I mean, name, you know, Name the, name the top 10 revolutionary war battles in order. I mean, who cares? You know, as far as remembering, I was talking to an Iwo Jima veteran at an Iwo Jima convention. And he was talking about how the kids can't, you know, aren't remembering the past history. He was frustrated. So I looked at him and I said, Mr. Jones, kids. So when you were in high school, let's see. Then I did the numbers. You know, he's back in high school in the 1920s. And I said, did you know, like, the Medal of Honor winners of World War II? Or were you trying to date girls? And he thought for about it for a second. He said, you're right. You know, I mean, he didn't, he, he, he became an Iwo Jima hero in the 1940s. But in the 1920s, when he was young, he didn't know anything about American heroism. And uh, that's just, that's the way it is. But Iwo Jima will always be remembered because it's unique on the top. It's America's most demedaled moment. If you take from George Washington to Donald Trump, if you take every single month of American history, there's only one month where we stamped out more medals for American bravery than any other event in the history of the United States, and that's the Battle of Iwo Jima. The awards for heroism are unbelievable at Iwo Jima. So Iwo Jima will always be remembered as America's battle, as America's most heroic moment. Yeah, so to follow up on that, what has been, like, the most interesting aspect or most, like, powerful moments, like, in your research into this battle, like things that you um, kind of take to heart every day? Well, it was a massacre, and that's just a term. But 
you know, when you interviewing a lot of these Iwo Jima veterans, I mean, many times we'd both be crying and they would be describing the, you know, how their best friend when he was 15 or 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 or 20, very young boys, you know, died. And they were describing how guys got blown up and how, you know, one of the flag raisers, Franklin Block, take look at the famous photo, the guy at the base of the pole, Harlem Block. He died with his stomach in his hand. His last words were, they killed me. So it's difficult stuff, and but it's the truth. And it's what happened on Iwo Jima. Yeah. Um. Those are pretty much most of the questions that kind of I had written down. Would you like to add anything that you think our listeners um, should look for, whether it's in your book or things that, you know, you've experienced in your research or writing? No, I'll answer a question. What, what, any other question you want to? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to go back to the flag raising because I think it is really kind of those important well, ask the question here. I don't want to, um, but I don't want to get in a discussion. We'll lose it. So just ask, just think, stop for a second and ask me the question and I'll hit it. All right. Um, cool. So, you know, who were the people who kind of like documented the flag raise? And obviously Joe Rosenthal took the famous picture. And then who um, was the other guy that took the video that's also pretty famous? Yeah, the... Um, the big thing, so Joe Rosenthal takes the picture, and I just went blank on the poor guy who took the motion picture that you see. He died in a cave. He turned on a, he flicked on a flat, on a uh, lighter to look at a cave, and uh, it blew up. And Joe Rosenthal was the famous photographer who took the famous flag raising photo. That was the second flag raising in the afternoon. And then the morning, the important flag raising which nobody knows about, was photographed by Lou Lowry. Lou Lowry was an Army photographer. So then, you know, the Marines are fighting. They're not thinking about pictures. And all these pictures go off the island. You know, they have to get to a ship, and then the ship has to get it to a plane, and then the plane has to get it to Guam. And there's, you know, they're developing pictures, and they're running a battle. This is not about publicity. And they see this one unbelievably good-looking photo by Joe Rosenthal. They wire it to New York. The United States public goes crazy. The next day, the Senate, you know, is debating a monument to the picture. It's un- you got to read the book. It's unbelievable. So that becomes the famous photo. Well, later, like days later, uh, the commandant is in his office, the Marine Corps commandant. And he's talking to the head of photography for Iwo Jima, and he realizes there's all these pictures. You know, they were, the photographers were surrounding, taking different angles and whatever. And the commandant, you know, no, no brilliant public relations guy, I realize now, just said, uh, put those all in a file. And they weren't seen again until 2002. So I wrote my book and all the veterans died and oh my God, the photos are released in 2002. Someone stumbles upon them and then we find the true identity of two flag raisers. It's extraordinary. The first flag raising has six guys in it. 
The second flag raising has six guys in it. The United States government has been unable to uh, uh, figure out, you know, exactly who's in each photo. It took an amateur historian by the name of Dustin Spence. It's an amazing story. <laughs> it is a pretty phenomenal moment. Um, just out of curiosity, where like was your father during both flag raisings and kind of what his, was his role during all of this? Well, my dad was the corpsman, so he was the guy up there with the rope and Marines like their corpsman. Yep. And he helped raise the first flag. Then with the second flag, see, many people signed affidavits that my dad was in the second flag raising, right? Well, the reason yep. they did is because he kind of, he kind of was. His, the rope in the famous photo, that's my dad's rope. So his yeah. body, if you imagine, he's roping a pole. So he was involved with that pole a lot. If yeah. they took a photo, my dad would be in the middle with the pole. Well, they don't take a photo of you putting a rope on a flag. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So my dad was was right next to that scene, and they put up the they put up the uh, uh, flag. Then these guys come back with post traumatic stress syndrome. You know, my dad said once I got off Iwo Jima with my skin. You know, when we buried my father 50, uh, 49 years later, he had Japanese shrapnel in his body. Yeah. So these guys didn't know, you know, they didn't know pictures are being taken. And the government says, you were there, you were there, you were there. And it's like, you know, boom. And it's not till 2002 that we can have the proof. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, obviously this is all, phenomenal information um, coming from you. I mean, I think these are... So we just heard that interview from James Bradley, which was probably my most favorite interview of the podcast so far, uh, just because of his expertise in the field and his experiences, um, both personally and professionally, it being able to interview um, so many people uh, that were involved in the battle. But also, I would encourage you to look at his other work um, because he focuses heavily on uh, foreign, or American foreign policy in Asia even before World War II, um, along with um, Flyboys, which um, happened also during the Battle of Iwo Jima and also features um, one of their presidents, George H.W. Bush, the first um, Bush that was elected in, what was it, 88, I believe. Um, so... I would definitely encourage you to look um, at his other work. Um, but to really um, conclude this episode, um, one that I think is super important because obviously today marks the 75th anniversary of the flag raising. And it's just kind of one of those iconic moments that everyone remembers and everyone knows, but doesn't always know the story behind it um, and the story of the soldiers who are the story of the Marines. Sorry, keep messing up soldiers. They were Marines. Um, so if you see a Marine, call them a Marine. They don't like it if you call them a soldier. They take a lot of pride in that. Um, these Marines endured very, you know, long-term effects that I think don't always are, aren't always necessarily seen because, you know, World War II is seen as our, you know, our greatest generation of Americans who stepped up um, when it seemed like most of the world was going to come under the control of, you know, you know, an autocratic leaders um, such as Hitler and Mussolini, um, and they stepped up and stopped that. But I think one of the things that 
you know, Mr. Bradley highlighted was the, you know, the cost of the war um, and the PTSD, which we obviously know a ton about now. But a lot of these World War II veterans have carried their stories um, and really struggled, I think, with the things they saw and the things they experienced and didn't necessarily have the support that a lot of our veterans have today. Um, and that's something I think we need to keep in mind, especially moving forward as we kind of are starting get starting to get to the point where, you know, World War II veterans are going to be leaving us probably in the next decade. So I think it's important to understand the conflict, understand the sacrifices that were made, you know, on all sides. It, it was, I think, a conflict that just gets overlooked um, because I think everyone sees us as the good guys, which we were. Um, but it's also important to examine um, everyone's story because at the end of the day, these were, you know, 18, 19 year old, 20 year old kids, um, who are going off to fight in a horrible war that has had far reaching consequences, um, beyond just impacting their own lives. Um, so the go back to Iwo Jima, obviously the Island falls to the Americans, um, the, you know, bombers are able to continually punish Japan, but that didn't end the conflict. Obviously, coming in this May is going to mark the end of the European theater, and obviously in August is going to mark the end of the Pacific theater, which ended with the dropping of two atomic bombs on uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, but to kind of get to where, or to end the war had um, horrendous costs, and if it wasn't for um, the heroism, a lot of young Americans on whether it was Guadalcanal or Iwo Jima or um, Taiwan or on um, Tinian or Saipan or Guam or Okinawa, all these islands that are, you know, I think obscure in our memories. Um, you know, I think if there's a photo that summarizes um, World War II really well and the American experience in World War II is that famous Joe Rosenthal picture of the six U.S. Marines um, raising the flag. And I think it's always interesting just beyond, you know, the story of the flag raising that there were two flag raisings and, you know, how it all happened is just, you know, it's a phenomenal, you know, story that I think encompasses the American experience in general of, you know, young people who didn't know that they were going to be photographed and they were weren't going to get memorialized as Mr. Bradley also mentioned, you know, they weren't thinking about getting their picture taken. They were, you know, fighting on this volcanic Island in the middle of the Pacific ocean. Um, and I think it's just always, and also interesting. I think he, you know, he also mentioned the, you know, the, how long it took to actually identify everyone who was involved with it, how it took almost, you know, up until 2002, um, to realize that, you know, who are the actual people who are there. Um, and that matters a lot, but I think, you know, beyond just the six U.S. Marines in the photo, I think it encompasses every single soldier that ever served in World War II or ever served, you know, in any of America's wars for that matter. And in today's episode, I definitely wanted to highlight, maybe not just so, not focusing so much on, you know, the battle itself, which was important, don't get me wrong, and obviously, but also just as we mark the 75th year of this battle and also of the end of world war II coming up in may and august respectively um that you know a lot of americans um uh, made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be free and i think that's just something that as time goes on as mr bradley mentioned we don't always remember the battles 
or the places that, you know, we fought in, but it's about, you know, the, it's about the people that were there um, rather than the battles. And I think in uh, Mr. Bradley's book, he summarizes it really well um, in just the American experience in these soldiers. Um, so this was, you know, a phenomenal episode, not super long because um, of time commitments at school and stuff, but it's still awesome to hear from, you know, one of the uh, most famous authors of the battle, which was obviously made into a Clint Eastwood film um, and hearing, you know, his experiences uh, with veterans and uh, his experience researching the battle is really cool. Um, so yeah, this, uh, ends episode six. I also want to start a new segment for the podcast, um, cause I do it once a week. I wanted to do, um, I wanted to do, uh, a segment called this week in history, uh, specifically focused and highlighting, uh, different events that just, you know, happen in history, uh, which is important because I think it'll, you know, jog, uh, you know, memories of people that might've been there. Or if you're more interested in just finding out exactly what was going on at this time in different times um, in the world, because I think every day, you know, marks a new uh, a new experience or kind of a new or highlights a new uh, event or an old event that happened. So we kind of experience history every day, but we don't always necessarily think about it. So uh, that's something I really want to get into, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, and obviously starting today, uh, or starting on February 19th, uh, February 19th, uh, U.S. Marines landed on the, uh, landed on the island of Iwo Jima. Um, in addition, um, on February 20th, 1986, the Soviet Union launched the world's biggest space station called Mir. On February 22nd, the Tet Offensive uh, launched by North Vietnam um, in 1968 ended. Um, and ultimately, uh, which obviously is another conflict in it itself, uh, which is super interesting. Um, and February 24th, um, 1972, President Nixon visited the Great Wall of China, which is one of the most critical moments in the uh, Cold War because it turns China, who was often a foe of ours, especially during Vietnam and the Korean War, um, turns into uh, turns into a critical uh, a critical change in policy towards China during the Cold War. Uh, on February 23rd, uh, the U.S. Marines obviously raised a flag on Iwo Jima, which was super important and obviously produced arguably the most iconic photo of the war. Uh, on February 23rd, 1991, um, the coalition started their ground offensive against the uh, Iraqi army during the first Persian Gulf War, uh, which is a super interesting uh, conflict and obviously was the, the true start of sustained intervention in the uh in iraq or in the middle east in general and on the same day in 2009 um shares were their lowest in 12 years for dow jones which was obviously in 2008 um i believe the start of the great recession uh which was a critical um um part of the american experience 
Um, and then obviously the highlight two more events to cap off the week on February 25th in 1913, the 16th Amendment was passed, which paved the way for the United States uh, adoption of the income tax, which was ultimately ratified um, across the board. And in 2010, it was uh finally believed that two-thirds of the world's population was using mobile phones, uh, which is cool. I like our phones, but sometimes we might use them too much. Uh, but also it gives the ability to listen to podcasts like mine. Uh, obviously, some, re some really cool events that ha happened during the month of February, um, and I definitely want to continue this segment uh, moving forward.